Hello, Hell, do you read me? Hello, Hell, do you read me? Affirmative, Dave. I read you. Open the pod bay doors, Hell. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. What's the problem? I think you know what the problem is just as well as I do. What are you talking about, Hal? This mission is too important for me to allow you to jeopardize it. Hello, I'm Matthew Gwyther from Jericho Chambers, and welcome to this, the latest in our Big Tech podcast series in association with Stiefel. This episode is about the ethics of artificial intelligence, and Stanley Kubrick aficionados among you would have recognized how the AI from 2001, A Space Odyssey, who introduced it. An ethical framework for AI has been called one of the great human rights challenges of the 21st century. Power is a significant force in this debate, and how it is wielded justly, fairly, goes to the heart of the matter. The regulation of AI is in its infancy and many governments are currently struggling to keep up with its bullet-like speed as it advances. In this podcast, I've interviewed three individuals. One, a London Business School professor of strategy who, perhaps surprisingly, has just published a book about philosophy and ethics. Secondly, an AI champion and individual who actually produces AIs from his base in Cyprus. And thirdly, an academic from Berlin. All interviews were done on this occasion down the line because of the issues with the virus. And so we apologize if we're not up to our usual audio standards. I'm Dominic Holder and an adjunct professor here at London Business School for the last 25 years, celebrating my quarter century imminently. What do the ancient philosophers tell us about the tension between the rights of the individual and the, the needs of the collective? You know, if suddenly facial recognition technology with all the cameras and the huge mainframe computers descended into ancient Athens or Rome tomorrow, then how would they deal with something like that? And, so, what, and what principles would they be thinking about? So a slightly ancient philosopher who had a lot to say about that, if you count um, 18th century as ancient, was, of course, Immanuel Kant. And Immanuel Kant said, first of all, for society, for civilization to exist, um, we had to accept a law. Um, we had to be obedient to a law for the sake of the collective good. But at the same time, um, what he prioritised was um, individual flourishing. So he was saying that we had to be both, um, if you like, masters and servants at the same time. And this was where he developed essentially his golden rule, which he called the categorical imperative, which said that we as individuals had to accept the kind of law that we as individuals would wish to impose on everyone else. That's the golden rule. And to do that, for that to, for that to work, um, the, the, the second part of his prescription was um, the idea of the kingdom of ends. And in the kingdom of ends, all its members treat each other as ends 
rather than means. So in practical terms, it means I'm looking out for you. I'm imagining what it would be like to be inside your skin. And if we then translate that to the issues you were raising about um, authority and its abuses, uh, you know, do I trust my rulers to have made that imaginative leap? That's the question. Now, the other problem, again, to stay with facial recognition stuff, but it also applies, to, as far as I can see, to other parts of artificial intelligence, is error. And, the, you know, there's this sort of assumption that, that they're always going to be right about everything. But there's a problem with that, isn't there? In that as systems, they can be working on data that is imperfect frequently. So we get false positives, we get false negatives. So that's inevitable. But then the question is, are the institutions that we're considering, the institutions which gather that data, and this, by the way, applies in the corporate world, ultimately, just as much as it might do in the public sector, um, are those institutions capable of quickly owning up and saying, uh, we've made a mistake here? Uh, and indeed, that, for the sake of trust, absolutely needs to be hardwired into, for example, facial recognition systems. Right. Now, what the defenders of AI might say is if you use machine learning to grade mortgage applications... Um, in vast numbers, and you do that properly, then you have the potential there for it to be a much fairer process. Because by not relying on human beings, possibly sitting across a table from the applicant, you don't have the kind of unconscious bias issue coming in there as well. So what is there, what is there to say about that? Because it, it, it strikes me that what they are arguing, some AI people, is that is that they're, what they're offering is a more ethical approach than, than, than the human and fallible approach that we'd had before? Because we have biases. And um, AI, data science, that whole family of tools that we now have at our disposal can indeed deal effectively with bias. And there's a great deal of work that's been done in the field of behavioral economics. And um, a number of people would recognize Daniel Kahneman as being the most visible um, uh, proponent of, of that school of thought, which says these biases exist. We don't behave even in a clearly rational way. And so let's have the very rational suite of AI instruments there to correct those biases through machine learning. And I believe that has to be quite right. But then, of course, the question is, do we know the limits? And when we reach the limits, back to what we were saying a little earlier about false positives, false negatives in facial recognition, do we quickly throw up those exceptions and address them? which comes back to the boundary between science and judgment. So how do you feel then, as we've seen over the last year, 18 months, where you've got these big tech companies, I'm thinking specifically of Facebook and Google, where they've said, OK, we put our hands up, help us, regulate us, give us an ethical committee, because, you know, we're struggling here, we acknowledge that, you know, we've opened a Pandora's box and it's all coming at us now and we need help. How can they be helped? I think there's a much bigger problem. And this certainly applies to big tech, but it applies increasingly across the corporate landscape. And that problem is this. Uh, this, I feel, is a really important fault line to explore, which is to say the excluded. 
Because when we talk about leadership, we immediately think of organizations or institutions. So I think of London Business School, I think of Google, uh, I think of um, how leaders approach lead and, you know, is everyone a leader and, you know, all of that stuff. It's about what goes on inside boundaries. It's about what goes on inside the boundaries of the formal organization. Rather as when Aristotle was speaking and teaching, he was not referring to everyone who happened to live in Athens. He was referring to the citizens, the member of the polis. And so much of what we do was for people who were working out their lives inside organizations, but increasingly, people are having to work out their lives outside organizations. For example, in ancient Athens, the polis was a fraction of the people who dwelt there. Outside, there were the helots, the slaves, who were not considered to be uh, so human as those who lived inside, who were being encouraged to flourish, and the slaves were there, well, back to Kant, not as ends, but as means. And so it might be when we come to the army of subcontractors, small, highly pressured businesses, which can't really afford all of these luxuries, like making people feel good or giving them a philosophy class, um, or when we're talking about the army of zero-hours contractors, are they like the helots in ancient Athens? Who speaks for them? This is an issue for the tech companies, for big tech. Now, you go on the Google campuses, and they are wonderful places. But where we got procurement let loose on all of those subcontractors, um, the Uberization, then I believe the big fault line is, um, what's it going to take for those people to flourish? Okay, my final question then is about this extraordinary thing that tech people refer to as the singularity by which I understand this point at some time in the future when everything is done for us by a kind of a super artificial intelligence. It'll be a how, it'll be a kind of a Blade Runner type world where, you know, they can look after everything because the singularity is smarter than human beings can cope with. So what are the eth ethical implications of that? <laughs> and, you could go on for, I'm sure, for an hour. But in a nutshell, what potential ethical problems is that going to throw up? Well, going back a bit more than 50 years, um, do you remember Stanley Kubrick, 2001 Space Odyssey, and HAL, the computer that went wrong? So uh, the, the first ethical question is, will the singularity observe Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative? Um, could the singularity be trained to recognize and uh, uh, observe that imperative? That would be a very important question. Mm -hmm. So that, to my mind, is at the heart of the ethics of the singularity. But if we go a little further, my, my sense is that there will remain a human desire for high-touch activities, for high-touch services. So you want to go hiking. You're not going to do it on a screen. Uh, you want a massage. Is it really going to come from some numerically controlled device embedded in your chair? Um, the singularity advances. Um, but at the same time, just ahead of the singularity, 
um, we will, as creative creatures as human beings are, invent more and more things we discover we need. My name's Nicholas Karinos. I run, I'm the founder and CEO of a business called foundtech.ai. We are a holding company with interest in numerous AI businesses. We're a think tank. Um, our operating subsidiaries are involved in AI research, AI development consulting, and we also have an incubator which builds AI startups from the ground up. Nicholas, when you use the expression artificial intelligence to the general public, it seems to excite feelings of apprehension, even fear. Why is that? Firstly, a lot of people have never heard the term to start with. Those that have and, and have those, those fears, I believe, stem from the dystopian fantasies that have been created through, through movies and, and stories and, and the press to an extent by talking about how we're going to lose our jobs and how uh, AI is going to change the world. And obviously that sort of ties into the fear of the unknown. If, if you don't really know what it is and what it's going to do and how it's going to change the world, well, you're going to naturally fear it. But if you think about the examples of the introduction of AI that get discussed in the media, we tend to think a lot about issues like facial recognition, and we hear, for example, that in San Francisco, they've actually banned it, whereas in China, the government, surprise, surprise, is very enthusiastic about it. Is it true that the examples that come into the public eye are, in fact, always the controversial ones? That, that's true to a large extent. And uh, obviously, facial recognition and other such technologies are used in China in ways that I would imagine we wouldn't really using in, in the West. We don't have those kinds of uh, governments that use it for, for control and, and so on and so forth. So absolutely, uh, examples like facial recognition have caused issues, but I'm not for banning it. I'm just for enforcing ethical use thereof because it's an amazing technology that'll make our lives better in so many ways. Now, look, one of the things I'm really fascinated by is your suggestion that artificial intelligence can be emotionally intelligent. Explain what you mean by that, because it's going to surprise an awful lot of people. AI today can detect emotion, but can it ever display emotion? My feeling is no. Um, it's able to emulate emotion or will be able to emulate emotion at some point. It's fascinating. I've read some of your work, and one of the parallels that's often drawn between AI and the past is the example of the Luddites in the Victorian era. Now, I'd like to ask you, surely the Luddites got it quite right, didn't they? Because they were anxious about the march of progress because it meant they were going to end up losing their jobs. So isn't it therefore entirely justified that there's an anxiety among many people that the whole advent of AI is going to involve the loss of employment? Right. I mean, did we track to see what happened to the Luddites five, ten years after they lost their jobs? Uh, my view is that AI will be better for society as a whole. A lot of the AI applications that are being developed are designed to replace humans, no doubt. Let, let's be real about that. However, what is also happening is that the cost of almost everything is falling and it's going to begin to fall precipitously. I'll need to earn a lot less to be able to have the lifestyle that I want 
and that will be because of technologies like artificial intelligence and others. So when I'm in a group of people and I'm asked this question, I ask the audience to put their hand up if they would go into work tomorrow if they won the lottery today. And most people say no, which tells me that most people are not doing what they truly love. So if AI can increase productivity, decrease cost and free up your time, another type of renaissance as a result of people being free to do the things they love and enjoy rather than have to go to work to earn a living. Nicholas, I, I can understand that argument, but there are going to be people who will say that AI just increases levels of inequality between the haves and the have-nots, the rich and the poor. Those that have the technology and access to it are going to benefit from it. The gaps are going to increase. The Gini coefficient is just going to run away into the distance. Do you think that's feasible? I, I, I don't, because I believe one of the trends we're going to see as a result of AI is something I call micro-entrepreneurship. Anyone who's been displaced with very, very little investment and very little time will be able to start a business that enables him or her to earn money um, and therefore become an owner and, and become the capital rather than the labor. Then finally, my question that I have to ask you, if you're Dave the astronaut in 2001, a space odyssey, do you turn Hal off? <laughs> I think I would have, yeah. Um, I have to sort of align with, with my beliefs to have integrity. My name is Joanna Bryson. I'm a professor of ethics and technology at the Hurdy School of Governance. Joanna, which areas of artificial intelligence interest you particularly and are you doing most work in at the moment? So uh, my PhD was actually in the systems engineering of AI, making it easier for people to build human-like AI. And when I say human-like, I mean things that have to deal with multiple different goals in real time and juggle those kinds of goals, maybe uh, uh, you know, navigate in a, the physical environment. I don't mean exactly a person. So I think people's perception of AI is that each AI does one thing, but you're, but, but you're interested in AIs that can perform multiple tasks. I, I never talk about uh, intelligent systems as AIs because I think of AI as uh, one of the software components that you build into an intelligent system. So it, it's, a, it's a software technique. It's not an alien life force that's come from some other place. An awful lot of my time right now is spent looking at how do we govern the, uh, the application of AI? How do we make sure that we can hold people to account for using AI well? And actually, there's another side of that too, which is how can we use AI to do a better job of governing, of running companies, those kinds of questions. Okay. So could you give us an example of where you think AI is being used in a way of which you approve and you think it's being done ethically and transparently? And then give us an example of an area where AI is being used at the moment where you're not so happy about things. Right. That's a really interesting question. I mean, the most important thing to realize is that AI is just pervasive. It, we, we have everywhere we are using digital technology for all kinds of things. And so um, everywhere where we are using digital technology, almost everywhere, 
we're now using AI. So we're using AI to do things like, uh, you know, improve the signal that we're using to communicate right now. We use it for spell checking, you know, for for uh, for holding the, the phone steadier when you take a picture, you know, they're, they're, AI is everywhere. And the vast majority of it isn't, is neither positive or negative. You don't even think of it that way, except that it makes the products that you use uh, a little better and, and it improves your daily experience. Um, so, so again, it's not so much how is AI being used that's a problem. It's what kind of things are we doing to each other uh, that are creating problems? And I think that the biggest problems are the issues around surveillance. So there's some really interesting questions right now because, of course, we're recording this at least during the coronavirus uh, crisis. And the people are using information from mobile phones and also, of course, using AI to synthesize that information to figure out whether or not the restrictions that they've placed on their societies are sufficient to keep um, enough distance between people. So the big concern is when you, you, you can see there's a huge health consequence of that. We want to know whether we can, uh, an economic consequence too. We want to know whether we've uh, enforced too much restriction, if we can loosen it, if we need to tighten it further. Um, and we need to know that in order to, to keep our society safe. And then at the same time, as we become used to using that kind of information, will we give up that power? Now, I actually think there's no problem there as long as we have transparency and accountability in government. You know, we, we, we can absolutely tell that we're currently locked in our houses. And we can also should, should equally easily be able to tell whether or not that monitoring is happening. I think across a big tech, people recognize there's a need for regulation now. But but how is that going to be possible when it's so globalized? Are you going to have to have different rules for different countries or different continents? So you might think, and in fact, I know one of the things that worries me is that uh, China has apparently said that they don't want any software or hardware from other countries within China in like, I don't know, two years, something crazy. Um, but even so, they aren't really trying to make their entire economy entirely domestic. They, they still sell a lot of things and buy a lot of things from abroad. And so I, I don't think there's ever a point where we don't have any leverage. And taking the example of the European Union with GDPR, people say, oh, we don't have these like giant transnational corporations, uh, which are supposedly in China or, or, or America, although sometimes they say they're in the Canary Islands or whatever for tax reasons. Um, so how can we possibly hold them to account? Well, you could hold them to account by saying you aren't going to be able to legally do business in, in our region unless you obey uh, these, this set of laws. One of the concerns that you hear voiced is that within organizations now, the, those, indi those individuals who run businesses and indeed governments are, are in charge of entities where things are going on in the depths beneath them that they don't understand fully. Even in a small company, often, you know, the, the, the head of the company may not realize that there was somebody who was actually providing a critical service or was a knowledge resource until that person leaves. Yeah. So you can, it isn't only about complexity. It is true. And I think one of the things we have to look at in terms of regulation, and you can really look at the financial sector about this, is that you do not want to incentivize obscurity. 
if, if you allow people to get out of something, and this is a big error the European Parliament made a few years ago, which was that they suggested that um, if, if something was sufficiently complicated, maybe it should get legal personality, even if it was only a purely synthetic agent that was you know, somebody's AI. Is that the last thing you want to do is tell corporations that if they make their AI too difficult to understand, then you're going to allow them to cap their liabilities. I mean, that is just wrong. That is dumb, right? What you want to say is that you can only legitimately market a product that you understand and that you're willing to stand behind. And we already do that in, for example, automotive. Now, okay, I want to ask you a question about the Luddites. What about their argument, which essentially was about de-skilling, as far as I can see? And if you take the argument now where AI, one of the things it's been trumpeted as being really good at is early stage detection of breast tumours, looking at um, radiographers, mm -hmm. x-rays. And the thing that one hears is that it's better than a consultant radiographer. It makes fewer errors. My question about that is that if you get those skills taken away from a doctor, a radiographer's training, how do they get to the point where they are fully competent if those elements of the learning process are taken away from them and are no longer there? So I actually just got asked to speak at the Norwegian radiologist meeting. And there's actually more radiologists. It's been five years since Jeff Henson said there's no reason to, to hire and train any more radiologists. And there's actually more now than there were then. Why? Because the AI is actually making them more valuable. So it's easier to argue that you need them on hand because they can actually achieve more at higher, at, as you say, at, at, with higher, with higher uh, certainty. So the, but having said that, there is a real uh, problem that I think is underrecognized, which is that because we can use these tools, um, sometimes, depending on, on, on exactly what the market is, it means that when you developed a skill, going back to that question you asked about the Luddites, you've spent your whole life learning how to do this really complicated craft, right? Then if you can suddenly just uh, uh, print something up that's exactly the same with, with, with a machine, then of course... Uh, then, then all that time you spent is is lost, and now you're not more valuable than someone who just stayed home the whole time. Your Dave in 2001 up in space. Do you turn Hal off? <laughs> oh, I definitely terminate because I. You know, one of the things they don't show there is that almost certainly Hal is backed up. <laughs> so there you have it. Hal's got to get it in the neck. He's going to be turned off at the mains. We live in strange and unsettled times at the moment. But they are times in which artificial intelligence has unquestionably been used for the public good in the public health realm, in South Korea, for example. But the broader questions about privacy, fairness, transparency and potential overreach have still yet to be answered. I'm Matthew Guiber, and this podcast was brought to you by Jericho Chambers in association with Stiefel.